Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. It is a beautiful day here in Portland. I hope it is wherever you are. Tomorrow is World War II Victory in Europe Day, VE Day. Also, National Nurses Week. In fact, yesterday was National Nurses Day. This is National Nurses Week. And congratulations to them. Today is my birthday. Uh, please, no need to wish me happy birthday when you call. It'll just burn through a lot of time. <laughs> but, you know, just to get that out of the way. And uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I want to share with you very quickly. But we have no guests today. It's just going to be you and me. And there is, of course, there are a lot of topics to cover. But also, whatever you would like to talk about, whatever we might have missed throughout the week, whatever might be on your mind, it doesn't even have to be relevant to politics. But my rant today, the piece that I published over at HartmanReport.com, the title is, Will Barr Get Away with Covering Up Treason for H.W. Bush, Reagan, and Now Trump? And it's about Bill Barr and how Judge Amy Berman Jackson, day before yesterday or maybe two days before yesterday, in this uh, court ruling based on crew oh what's crew stand for uh, responsibility and ethics in government something like that but re is the responsibility and ethics part um, and i think c is citizens for responsibility and ethics in maybe in washington but in any case crew filed a the freedom of information act lawsuit back when trump was still president after the Mueller report came out but it had not been released Mueller released it, thinking that it would go straight to the public and everybody would go, oh my God, we've got to prosecute Donald Trump. Look at those 10 specific incidents of obstruction of justice. Any normal person would be in prison for this. And what was he obstructing justice around? The fact that he was trying to collude with the Russians and that they had helped him win the election. And that, you know, I think America would have been aghast and Trump would have been prosecuted. Had Bill Barr not stopped us from seeing that thing for about a month and then come out in public in front of the American people? Remember when Congress called him to testify? The, the, the report still was not public. Even the redacted version still was not public. He lied to Congress. He lied to the media. He lied to you and me. I mean, these are all crimes. But he, what he was doing was he was lying to cover up the crimes of Donald Trump. And it turns out that Bill Barr has a long history of this. You go back to the 1980s and, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan cut a deal with the Iranians. President Bonnie Sauter, the, uh, the, the, the guy who was president of Iran at the time, told the Christian Science Monitor in 2013. And there's a link to that actual article with the president of Iran saying this in my in my piece today over at HarvardReport.com. He said, quote, Ayatollah Khomeini and Ronald Reagan had organized a clandestine negotiation, later known as the October Surprise, which prevented the attempts by myself and then U.S. President Jimmy Carter to free the hostages before the 1980 U.S. presidential election took place. The fact that they were not released tipped the results of the election in favor of Reagan." End quote. So that's what the president, uh, the guy who was the president of Iran in 1980 
during the election, during the campaign, when Ronald Reagan was running against Jimmy Carter. And, you know, you go back and you look at the, at the polling, and right up until the last couple months, Carter was way ahead of Reagan. And, but then Carter had his disastrous attempt to free the hostages. The helicopter went down in the desert. It got covered, you know, every, all across America. Those of you who remember 1980, all across America, people were tying yellow ribbons to trees and putting them on the front door of their houses. I mean, it was a thing. It was all over the country. And when Carter's uh, attempt failed, that was functionally the end of the Carter presidency. And it turns out that this was something that had been organized by the Ronald Reagan for President campaign with the Ayatollah, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini, the, the head of, of Iran. And the president of Iran has come out and said so. Well, Lawrence Walsh had been appointed special prosecutor in 1986 by Congress, and he was looking into this. It was called Iran-Contra. We would sell them weapons if they would hold the hostages, and then we took the money from selling them weapons and used that to illegally buy weapons and send them to the Contras down in Nicaragua and also to mess with Guatemala and El Salvador, things that Congress had specifically passed laws forbidding Ronald Reagan from doing. He did it anyway. I mean, we're talking about breaking major laws passed by Congress. So who, as, and, and you know, uh, the investigation by Lawrence Walsh started in 1986. Reagan left office in 88, and well, actually uh, January of 89, and January 20th specifically. And like within a week of his leaving office, we got the announcement that he had Alzheimer's and he would never again be seen publicly. I mean, I think he might have made one overseas trip during that first couple of weeks. Maybe it was a couple of weeks, but it was very, very quickly after he left. And so now we've got President George Herbert Walker Bush. Lawrence Walsh is continuing his investigation. He continues it through the four years of the Bush presidency. Bush refuses to turn over any documents to him that might have helped his investigation. Casper Weinberger, who had been the defense secretary for Trump, or for, excuse me, for Reagan, um, refused to turn over anything. Ollie North refused to turn over anything. I mean, you had this, this, this cast of characters, and they had already convicted several of them of crimes. Elliot Abrams, he was looking to go into prison. Um, Ollie North, looking to go into prison. Casper Weinberger, looking to go to prison. And so George Herbert Walker Bush, then, then Lawrence Walsh, the, the prosecutor, subpoenaed George Herbert, President, then President Bush's uh, diary, his campaign diary from the 1980 campaign. And he wanted to see, you know, were you, did you have any contacts with Iran too? And Bush said, no, I'm not going to give that to you. And this created, this came to a head the week of Christmas of 1992. This is Five, this is uh, seven weeks after Bush has lost the election to Clinton and five weeks before Clinton's going to be sworn in as president. So Bush is still president, but he's lost the election. It's in the lame duck period. So he goes to Bill Barr and he says, what do I do? How do I avoid going to prison for treason and revealing the treason of Ronald Reagan? And uh, Bill Barr in 2001 told some report, you know, a, a, this uh, university was doing an oral history of the Bush and, Trump and uh, Reagan administrations. And, and Barr came right out and said, it was my suggestion, pardon everybody, that will shut down the investigation. Which is not only what Trump did on his way out of town, but that's what George Herbert Walker Bush did. And thus you had this screaming headline across the top of the New York Times. I reprint the, the actual, uh, you know, kind of a photo of the New York Times in my article over at HartmanReport.com, Bush pardons six in Iran affair, averting a Weinberger trial, prosecutor assails cover-up. And then the second, the subhead, Bush diary at issue. And then below that, six-year inquiry into deal of arms for hostages all but swept away. So the question, do you think, I mean, you know, Joe Biden, President Biden has said, you know, hey, if we're going to go after anybody, that's not up to me, it's up, it's up to Merrick Garland. So is Merrick Garland going to go after Bill Barr? For that matter, is he going to go after Donald Trump? It looks like he is. 
But whether Bill Barr is in his sights or not, I don't know. But uh, I just thought I'd raise the question because it's something that, you know, it's really worth talking about. I tweeted it out this morning, too. It's over on our Facebook page, too, if you want to check it out. Whatever is on your mind, we can discuss. I've got, oh, we've got to get into the unemployment claims. I've got a bunch of other stuff. We'll, we'll sprinkle it through the show. Martin in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Martin, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Great show. Really great topics. I love your coverage. I wanted to celebrate the uh, accomplishments of NASA just recently with a Perseverance rover. I just thought it was incredibly inspiring, that landing in February and um, just everything about that mission. They, they've named the landing site Octavia Butler Landing Site. The Ingenuity helicopter just flew, and they just completed mm-hmm. a an experiment that proves they can create oxygen out of the atmosphere in in Mars for future crewed landings. And I just think everything about that mission has been so inspiring, and I just wanted to give them a celebratory shout-out. I'm with you. The other thing that I find fascinating is that they're discovering that apparently there's a large quantity of water on the planet uh, buried you know, buried under the ground, and which again means that at one point there was probably life on the planet. And but beyond that, that if we were to try to land humans there, you know, we could have access to water as well as, as you pointed out, we could concentrate oxygen out of the atmosphere. Exactly. It still would be a very, oxygen, very water, hostile place. Everything. That's very true. But I just think it would be fascinating to actually send people to another planet if we get around <laughs> yes. to that. I think it'd I be agree. Great. <laughs> I'm with you. Martin, thank you. Thank you. Excellent homage to NASA. Jessica in Chicago. Hey, Jessica, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I want to wish you a very happy birthday. But thank can you, we get the Trump baby balloon in Arizona? The sore losers just continue to want to recount over and over. And I wish I could go to Arizona and protest with a poster saying, Wah, 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 boo-hoo-hoo, hey, sore losers. Your community is losing over 100,000 for the stupid stupidity. And so um, one other thing, yesterday the first thing Rep. Elise Stefanik does is go on Steve Banyan's show to talk about the Arizona ninja counting and how they need to find 40,000 ballots from China. But it makes sense that the Republicans want to replace Cheney with Stefanik because um, she spoke for a half hour to stop the count of the ballots at, at the Capitol on January 6th, saying the election was stolen. And I sent an email to Rachel Maddow. I want to send it to you. I saved a screenshot. Rep. Elise Stefanik said, and it started out, it said, real results. And then it had a little hammer emoji, and then it, right before it said, we the people. So she's using the hammer emoji like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers use. She, she's hmm. part of, it's a Nazi little symbol, that hammer that they use. But for, for your birthday gift, I want to say one last thing. I want to leave you with a really good laugh. The wax okay. figure on display of the idiot Trump at the Louis Trudeau's Wax Museum in Texas was being punched so much by everybody that they had to move it to protect it. And I'm thinking, yes, and too bad they couldn't just put it behind bars already. Yeah, I remember the story. And 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 Jessica, you know, I think the, the, this whole thing with Stefanik is, you know, it's being treated by the media like it's kind of a joke. Well, and, and what's going on in Arizona, um, it's being treated by the media like, like it's a joke. Um, mm-hmm. There's a reason why we really, really need to take this super seriously, what's going on in Arizona, even though the feds are going to come in and probably shut it down if the uh, if the high school <laughs> proms yeah, don't do nope. that, do it before that. But um, what they're doing in state after state, I mean, again, the law that, that uh, DeSantis signed in Florida yesterday allows partisan elected officials to decide who won the election, not professionals. Just like the law in Georgia allows the Republicans who control the state legislature to decide who won the election, regardless of what the ballots say. 
So now you have two states. I, I believe we have a three. Uh, I believe this is true of Iowa as well. So maybe we have three states, and they're and they're working on doing this in Arizona by. 2024, I'm guessing we're going to have at least 15, maybe 20 states where the outcome of the election doesn't depend on how the voters voted. It depends on what the Republicans who control the state are going to say is the outcome of the election. And so all of this stuff that looks like high theater and absurdity, uh, which is being used to justify these kinds of laws, that's going to go away and be replaced by basically, you know, the government saying, well, you know, the new, the new uh, uh, you know, protectors of the election. It won't be the secretary of state any longer, at least in Georgia, because he got pushed out of the way. Um, but whoever's in charge of the elections now will be telling people in the states. And that is, in my mind, the setup for stealing the 2024 presidential election from uh, presumably Kamala Harris. And, and handing it to whoever the Republicans nominate. And I'm guessing it'll be one of their, fa- one of their more neo-fascist candidates, you know, probably Rick Scott, possibly uh, Ron DeSantis. I think it's a remote chance. Um, possibly Tom Cotton or, or uh, Josh Hawley or, you know, one of those guys. Uh, even possibly Nikki Haley uh, or uh, the, the woman who is the, the governor of South Dakota. Her name is escaping me at the moment, but... Um, um, you know, one of those folks, I, I really think that they're preparing to steal the elections in 2024. That's what this is all about. This is, and they're, and they're willing to put up with being ridiculed and they're willing to put up with all the difficulties because this is the long game. They're playing the long game here. So we need to be very careful. Jessica, thanks. Thanks for calling and uh, thanks for uh, pointing all that out. Appreciate the call. Scott in Portland. Hey, Scott, what's up? Hey, uh, they stole my thunder. I was going to do the shout out to JPL and NASA and the ingenuity. Uh, but I will mm. say this, that I, th- I think that the, the image, the first image that came back from the ingenuity, which was a shadow on the surface, uh, is going to be one of those iconic, like the Earthrise uh, images of a moment. It's, it's sort of ethereal where you don't really see the, the, the you know, the... The land, you know, the the orbiter. You don't see, you don't see the, mm-hmm. the device. You see its shadow, and that sort right. of tells a story about it. You know, just the fact that there's a shadow on the surface uh, implies all this other. It's kind of uh, like the uh, of Mars, from the Apollo Eleven. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like the Apollo Eleven shot. Uh, there was just a full shot of the boot print on the surface. Mm-hmm. That we've, we've all seen, and again, it's kind of like you don't see the boot. And you just you know, the the image of the imp- the impression on the surface of the on the lunar surface uh, sort of tells the whole story, and I think it's uh, it's going to go down in history as being one of those you know sort of wonderful things that uh, this are non political. And I, right. I, I remember as a twelve year old sitting in front of my parents' TV watching uh, you know Neil Armstrong come down the the limb. In that grainy black and white image and just thinking, you know, in five years, we're going to be living on the moon and uh, didn't quite work out that way. But uh, I, I think we're, we're, we're now seeing that it's, uh, the inertia is there to, to, to make things happen. And what you're talking about yeah. with the water, yeah. the same as on the, on the moon, there's an extraordinary amount of uh, frozen ice uh, water in the, in the surface of the moon. So basically, all we got to do is go up and put a dome and uh, it'll cond- the water will start condensing out. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, there's there's so much possibility in all these areas. And and for me, the big message, Scott, the the, the thing that that, um, you know, we need to be emphasizing over and over and over again is that Earth is a you know, it's this little marble in, in space where it, we have exactly. one planet. And we're, you know, as we pour pollution and, and carbon and whatever into the atmosphere, we're pouring, you know, we're polluting our whole entire planet. Nothing's local and, and nothing is leaving, by the way, the earth. So, you know, our, all of our waste and all of our poisons, they're not ending up on the moon. <laughs> they're ending up right back here. Yep. And, yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and how hopefully people, that, that How many message... people are we going to put on the moon? How many people are we going to put on Mars? You know, it's just, it's. Right. It's. It's yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's certainly it's not going to be the entire human race. Yeah, absolutely. Scott, thanks a lot for the call. It's great. It's a great one. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? Tom, thanks so much for taking my call. Uh, just to go back to uh, your act earlier, uh, at the beginning of the show, I always thought that uh, Bill Bell was playing with fire. So, I mean, 
I mean, is he going to get prosecuted now? He has a long history of it. Exactly. You know, and I think he, you know, since he was playing with fire, I think the Trump administration to certainly go after him and, and, and prosecute him for everything that he did, you know, and, and may, that may, might lead us to Trump. But what I wanted to call about is that um, we need to continue to push for the $15 minimum wage. You know, the minimum mm-hmm. wage is the only thing, the only thing that inflation never, uh, uh, um, uh, $15 minimum wage never touched. kept up with yeah. inflation. It never touched. You always say the same. And I think it's, it's way uh, due. And the thing is that you, if you make the minimum wage, they sh- you should not pay any federal or state taxes. That would help with poverty. You know, we always talk about we want war on poverty. This is the best weapon and tool. You know, give people $15 an hour, make it tax-free. It would help people, especially coming off this pandemic. Well, this is, you know, the, the uh, uh, I believe it's called the American Jobs Plan. No, that's that's yeah. the next one. The, the last one, the, the American Rescue Plan. Uh, Rescue you know, the, the, the COVID bill that got passed like a month or so, or so ago. That has tax breaks for average citizens that are so extensive. This is, these are the largest tax cuts for people making under $75,000 in the history of the country. And most people making under $75,000 will discover a year from now, next April, that they don't owe any taxes, any federal taxes, which is mind-boggling when you think about it. So I'm with you. Omar, thank you. Thank you very much for the call. It's great to hear from you. We'll be right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes and Military Plots Left on the Drawing Board. It's by Vince Houghton. This is from the introduction. This is a book about desperation. That word has been so overused and misused that it's lost much of its impact. Too many stories about some local sports team desperate for a win or some housewives desperate for whatever that show is about. These pretenders have trivialized a word designed to be used only in the most extraordinary of circumstances. It should be a powerful word reserved for the urgent and overwhelming feeling that one's life is at risk. It's for the truly existential threats, another misused word, to one's country, one's family, one's friends, or one's livelihood. To feel desperate is to believe there are no good options, that everything that has been tried or could be tried is destined for failure. Desperation leads us to consider ideas that would have been unfathomable under normal circumstances, because desperate people make desperate decisions. This is also a book about innovation. Creative thinking about how things work and the possibilities of how things could work has been the catalyst for the astonishingly dynamic technological transformation of the past hundred years. From the advent of lighter-than-air flight to hypersonic aircraft, from bolt-action rifles to electromagnetic railguns, from ENIAC to quantum computing, from one poor freezing soldier in a trench listening to intercepted wireless messages to the NSA's supercomputers collecting the metadata of billions, Brilliant people with innovative ideas continue to shape our world and do it exponentially faster than the generations that came before. But when innovation and desperation meet, trouble will usually follow. If necessity is the mother of invention, desperation is the drunk uncle. The guy who only calls twice a year at 3 a.m. on your birthday with the greatest idea anyone has ever had. No matter how hard you argue against the logic of his narrative, no matter how many flaws you find in his reasoning, he's resolute. This will work. It has to. He's a desperate man. 
Every so often, we're surprised when one of these ideas actually pans out. The U-2 and SR-71 spy planes, some of the most innovative aircraft ever designed, were the result of American desperation to see inside the Soviet Union. Nuclear power, computers, the internet, modern textiles, personal encryption, even the process of how some of our food is grown, were born out of the nation's desperate fear to keep pace with an imposing rival. Much of that history has been written before. Countless books have been published about the remarkable and successful technology developed over the last century by governments for national security needs. This is not one of them. Most history books are full of stories that happened. This is a history book full of stories behind things that didn't happen. Here we'll take an expansive look at projects, missions, operations, and technology that were seriously considered but didn't make the grade. Some were ultimately deemed too risky, expensive, dangerous, ahead of their time, or even certifiably insane. Others were canceled mostly because they were overtaken by events. The atomic bomb worked, the war ended, the plans were captured, other technology superseded. Generally, history books use events of the past to make powerful arguments about historical actors' motivations, personalities, and states of mind, and rightfully so. This is part of what history books are supposed to do. But I contend that the evaluation of historical events is not enough. It can be just as important to investigate policies, decisions, and technologies that were considered at the highest levels, but then nixed for a variety of reasons. The intent of historical actors can be, and I argue is, far more instructive and illuminating than focusing entirely on the outcome of their policies. Outcome history is the traditional way of viewing historical events, but it leaves much to be desired. It has severe limitations, primarily because its lessons are predicated on things that can't be accurately quantified. Fate, luck, misfortune, whatever you want to call it. If the D-Day invasion of Normandy had failed because of a freak weather system, or a lucky shot from a German soldier that took out a key American leader on the beach, or any number of other misfortunate scenarios, would we think any less of Eisenhower's plan? Using outcome-based history, the answer is yes. And therein lies the problem. Intent can be a very powerful tool for historians. So leave your historical hindsight at the door. Ignore the fact that these policies, technologies, programs, and missions were scrapped before they became real. To get the most out of this book, you should take the advice of Master Yoda. You must unlearn what you have learned. The outcomes of the programs are inconsequential to the overall message of the narrative. Outcome really doesn't matter here at all. That's why this book scorns the counterfactual, the game of what if, vilifies it, mocks it mercilessly. The counterfactual is our enemy. We will not what if ourselves until we are blue in our faces trying to rewrite history into a hodgepodge of ahistorical nonsense. Deep breath. I might have taken that a little too far. Counterfactuals can be a lot of fun when you're hanging out with your friends and family debating the what-ifs of the Kennedy assassination of the Civil War, the Protestant Reformation, or the Star Wars prequels, or the 1986 World Series. I forgive you, Bill Buckner, mostly. I'd be happy to join you all one day for a vigorous debate on historical counterfactuals, perhaps over your favorite adult beverage or bottle of Yoohoo, but they have no place here. Instead, all of these stories should have you saying, what were they thinking? The best way to approach this book is with an open mind toward the decision makers and how they were approaching the problems facing them. In almost every case, those in power were desperate to do something, anything, to combat their adversaries. Thus, what were they thinking is exactly correct, except I hope you'll be willing to truly embrace the question and not just see it as the dismissive aside or a hasty pejorative. Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes, our book for the day. Welcome back. Katie in Australia. Hey, Katie. What's up? Hi, Tom. Hello. I'm, hey. I'm Katie in Hamul in Australia. Where in Australia are you, Katie? We're south of Perth in a little, lovely little town called uh, Fremantle. My husband's from Sydney, but we're in Fremantle. So I, I know you've been the, in Perth before. Yeah, yeah. So you're over there it's by the bit, Indian Ocean it, on the far about, west side of the country. Yeah. That's beautiful Absolutely. country. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I send you the sun every sunset. I send it over to, to San Diego. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, no, I've sent you a couple emails on, regarding what's going on in Australia. And actually, I, we go back and forth, my husband being Australian, but I, when I landed here, it was the beginning of COVID. So I've been on the front line of a country that handled it extremely, extremely well. And as you mentioned before, you had a caller last week who, or I don't know, this week, it's a little late here, 
past midnight, and who who mentioned that there was a prime minister or he thought it was the current prime minister who talked about um, uh, who told the truth about the Murdoch family in in absolutely mm-hmm. pulled no punches, and you hadn't you didn't know about it. We knew about right. it here. And I sent you an email saying, here's what that gentleman was referring to. And he had caught it, I I think, on the CNN, actually. Was it? it, So it wasn't Kevin Rudd. Who was it? No, it wasn't Kevin Rudd. And this can update your, because you do always refer to Kevin Rudd's excellent article that's getting, you know, a little little long in the tooth. And it was Malcolm Frazier. um, The Republican. yeah, who was a Republican? Or I mean, the conservative. You know, we call liberal, but he's a conservative, and it's it's in the Financial Review. In fact, the the link that I sent you, hoping that it would just be up, you would upload it to your newsletter, uh, was a was a video. But this is in the Financial Review, and I think I'll probably just send it to you. It's called uh, Turnbull Unloads on quote lying, end quote uh, News Corp. And, yeah, yeah um, go for it. I, I had okay, uh, this is this is what he says. One of the things he says, I just I'm picking out anything here. News Corps now is like a political party, but with just one member or one family of members, and that is an absolute threat to our democracy, he said. Turnbull said. Yeah. This is the yeah. fundamental problem, going on to quote him, that we're facing the most powerful political actor in Australia is not the Liberal Party his conservative party or the national right. party or the labor party it is news core and it is utterly unaccountable it's a, and it's true it's here a fabulous too fabulous katie well, katie when was when was point. he when was he prime minister I, I i don't know the lineage you know the order of prime ministers there uh, he was um let's see he was the one before this uh, dreadful um Morrison, Scotty Morrison Before that we have. So he's the immediate past prime minister. He's the, the, the most I recent prime I think he's pri- the immediate. Past. There may have been, you know, they, they, they do different terms. There may have been an avid in there. And yeah. he's, very, oh, he's a very active politician. And very an excellent for you to, yeah, to quote well, for all Well, the conservatives the are turning on the Murdochs. You know something real is going on. Katie, I'm out of time, but it's thank you. Thanks for the call, and I look forward to the note. Thank you again. I just want to make one quick note because it's kind of at the top of the news and everybody's talking about it, about the uh, unemployment claims. They were expecting that today's jobs report that would come out from the Labor Department would uh, indicate, or maybe this Treasury, I think it's Labor, would indicate that there was probably you know a million new jobs created in April. And it turns out that it was only 200 and something, 200, a little over 200,000. Um, don't have the exact number right here in front of me in this article. And that's supposed to hurt the stock market, and that's supposed to indicate that Biden and the recovery aren't doing so well. I mean, this is what you're going to hear on right-wing talk radio today, right? Oh, this is proof that Biden's stimulus really didn't work, and right, 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 the Republicans were right, we should have done nothing at all, and why all this big spending? And people won't work, you know, but they're getting too much money from the from the unemployment benefits, and quack, 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 right? This is, this is the right-wing take on the fact that fewer than 300,000 new jobs were created in April. The reality, just so, you know, the next time one of your right-wing friends or neighbors or relatives or Facebook buddies or whatever throws that out, the reality is that people are still afraid to go back to work because there's still disease running around out there because of the Republicans and the mask holes, number one. Not everybody's vaccinated. Only about half of us are vaccinated. So number one, there's still still fear. Number two, there are still a lot of people who can't go back to work, particularly women, although there's, there's men in this category as well. Whoever's going to be the principal caregiver for their children in the family can't go back to work because the schools are not yet open in a lot of places. And, and most daycare is still not open at all. So you've got a lot of of parents who simply can't go back to work. 
And then you've got some older workers because the stock market has gone up so much and a lot of people were a lot smarter than me and they invested in the stock market after the crash in 2008. And they've got so much money now that they're just retiring in their late 50s and in their 60s. And, uh, and, and God bless them. But, uh, you know, so you've got those folks who are just not interested in going back into the labor market. You've got some younger workers who have decided to, to look at different professions. They're going into other new fields, which shrinks the general labor pool. And uh, a lot of employers are still trying to hire people at crap wages. You know, $2.15 an hour for, for servers. And you wonder why restaurants are complaining that they can't hire servers. Seven twenty-five an hour for, for minimum wage workers. And you wonder why you know, restaurant or why businesses are saying, hey, nobody wants to work. Yeah, nobody wants to work for that kind of money. Are you kidding? Particularly after a whole year of a conversation about $15 minimum wages. So anyhow, I just wanted to put that out there so you have it and you know, and uh, we're all well informed. Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz, what's on your mind today? Bonjour, mon ami. Hey, always a new language. What's up? Yeah, yeah, you're the one that inspired. You're, you're, anyhow, all right. The first time I heard about COVID nineteen, Tom, was on your program. Even then, even then, you seemed to consider the potential impact ominously. And I had a feeling at the beginning of uh, he who shall not be mentioned's term that deaths were possible and that democracy itself could be at peril. I didn't say it out loud because the whole notion just seemed so preposterous at the time. But we were subject to every day being a crisis of the day until we grew deaf from crisis fatigue. And then we came so close to losing it all in the election of 2020. And now I find myself reveling that things are normal again. This is a historical moment in time, Tom. Our children will be telling the story to their grandchildren that two years of our lives were just ripped away. COVID-19, as in 2019... How flagrantly stupid is this? We had to endure so much unnecessary suffering. Now they're saying it might be even 900,000 deaths. Such That's a right. horrific, yeah, such a horrific blemish on American exceptionalism. We could have led the world once again out of the darkest epoch of our lifetimes. No, we led the world in COVID deaths. To wrap up, we went to war over 3,000 deaths from 9-11. If someone came and killed 900,000 Americans, we would have scorched and salted the earth to root them out of their spider holes. 100,000. Listen, right. kids. And, and, and 400,000 of those deaths, we know for sure. And that's out of the yeah. 500,000, yeah, yeah. right? 400,000, so, in other you. words, about 80% of them were deaths that were completely unnecessary. They were because, you know, Trump and Kushner were so incompetent or because they simply chose not to do anything about it because they thought it was mostly killing black people in blue states. So hang on to your masks and vaccination cards, pass them down as heirlooms, and don't ever let our legacy once again include terror, insurrection, and death. Thanks, Tom. Amen. Thanks, Chez. Great rant. Mark Taylor Canfield in Seattle. Hey, Mark, what's up? Happy birthday, Tom. Well, thank you. It, it is, uh, we just had May 3rd, which is a World Press Freedom Day, as designated by mm -hmm. the United Nations. And then Reporters Without Borders came out with their World Press Freedom Index, which is ranking the U.S. 44th in the world in terms of press freedom this oh, year. Oh, my. Oh so it's my. the 30th That's anniversary. So, isn't that tragic? I mean, were the guys who well, invented that concept not, back in the 1770s? It's been slipping since uh, early two, 2000s, but uh, we were at 48th last year. So some other countries have actually gotten worse, let's put it that way. But it was the 30th yeah. anniversary of the adoption of the Winhoop uh, Declaration that was drafted during the World Press Freedom Day proceedings in Namibia. So this year, the World Press Freedom Day events were again held in Namibia, uh, with most of the events taking place online. And as executive director for Democracy Watch News, you know, it's my job to track these press freedom issues around the world. So I participated in that conference along good with on the you, Mark. press club event. What's that? I said good on you, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a big issue for me. Along with the National Press Club, they also held an event 
so we got to talk to some great people, especially also during the International Symposium on Online Journalism. This all took place over the last week. So we got to talk to A.G. Sulzberger, the you know publisher of the New York Times, Marty Barron from the Washington Post, Catherine Viner, the editor-in-chief of The Guardian. And some of the themes this year were the development of new journalism, because there are a lot of new nonprofits like my organization that are out there trying to change the face of journalism. There's also a big, a lot of talk about the protection of female journalists, because the International Women's Media Foundation uh, reported that a study showed that 70% of female journalists have been reported being harassed online, usually from men. And then we also yep. had a lot of sessions on how to talk with all the dis- talk about the disinformation and how to deal with an encounter the massive amount of disinformation coming out of, well, so-called news organizations and then these social media platforms. And then we also talked a lot about the application of virtual reality and augmented reality to journalism, which I think is going to be the big cutting-edge thing that uh, is going to be happening. We got to work with one of the head technologists from the New York Times on that, and I think journalists are going to start to embrace that pretty quickly here, Tom, and you'll see a lot of VR and augmented reality uh, projects that are um, organized by journalists because it'll help us tell the story. It'll bring you stuff. right into that village in Namibia where we're doing this story. So we can place Mark, you... Mark, was any of this... Uh, of the did, did, the, did anybody from the Murdoch Empire participate in any of these events? Not, did, not at all. <laughs> not, <laughs> not from the Australian, right? their British, or their American uh, components? Yeah, they were, I mean... Uh, as far as the ISOJ, there were 132 countries represented. There were like 7,300 people that had registered. So this is so mostly countries, companies. not not press companies. Uh, so when when we heard from the head of the Washington Post and the New York Times, we didn't hear from mm-hmm. the head of Fox News or the publisher no. of the Times of London or or the uh, the various newspapers, the Australian. You know that uh, Murdoch, I believe, he owns the, the Australian in Australia. We didn't hear from them. No, we did get a really great session from Catherine Viner from The Guardian, but no, we didn't hear about that. And by the way, The Guardian is model, their contribution model is doing quite well. They actually Good. are one of the most sustainable news organizations right now, which is really, really a great, great thing. Yeah, a lot of people are, are moving to that. A lot of people in the journalism and near the journalism business are moving to, you know, uh, we'll give you free content. And if you can afford, please kick in a little for a subscription. And I subscribe to The, to the Guardian, for example, even though it's available online for free. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a very good thing. Mark Taylor Canfield. Mark, thanks. Keep up the great work. Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind? Tom, you've gone over a few things that I wanted to say, but I watched the uh, the news conference this morning with Biden, and basically mm-hmm. he wanted to because that that jobs report it was two hundred sixty six thousand jobs, so that's the Thank number. You. But uh, he he basically saying you know you know we're we're in this for the long haul. We can't expect things to change overnight. But you know it's remarkable what has been accomplished just in the last four months. And w- one aspect of this that a lot of people aren't pursuing like they should, like. Uh, uh, some of the Michael Beschloss and Doris Kearns Goodwin, these uh, presidential historians that you see on most of the cable channels, is where do you think we would be right now if Trump would have been reelected and the Republicans were in control of the House and the Senate? Where do you think we'd be? You talk about right, and we and we had just continued to do basically nothing. I mean, Trump ordered 100 million doses of yeah. vaccine, enough to provide a first vaccination to a little less than a third of Americans, and then Pfizer came back and said, "Hey, you want to buy a second hundred million? And Trump said, "No." No, <laughs> no, not, yeah. not well, interested. You know, the, the, Go the away. Pandemic, the, the and pandemic, the economy, uh, voters' rights. Can you imagine where we'd be right now? Uh, the, uh, the we would not be act. a functioning Republican any longer, Tim, if Trump uh, had been able to hold on to the White House. People have yeah. to be that's reminded how close of we that. were. Oh, and by the yeah. way, it, I'm with you. today is your birthday? Yeah. Yeah, well, my, mine's the 17th. My best friend is the 10th. And guess who was 90 years old yesterday? Who's Willie that? Mays. Wow. I guess 17th wouldn't be Taurus, but a lot of, you know, around there. And one of my brothers has his birthday tomorrow. Sean's was yesterday. Another brother is next week. It's like, you know, <laughs> for us, well, you know, I'm, it's a, it's I'm a, a lot of I'm folks. an identical twin, and we missed uh, Gemini by uh, three days because uh, 17th is Taurus. Ah, uh-huh. Will, yeah. Willie yeah. Mays, well, well, I met him at a, after a baseball game in 1962 in San Francisco. Really? Yes. Oh, I, wow. I, I, Quite an amazing thing, and he's he's born the same month as I would. He's the last 
Uh, he's the, the only uh, surviving, uh, uh, the oldest surviving uh, uh, baseball player now that's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Pretty, pretty that's wonderful. Exactly. That's wonderful. I I did not realize that Willie Mays was even still alive. That's but he's yeah. ninety. That's that's incredible. Tim, I need to move along, but thank you. Right. And, and you know, Bye-bye. thanks for for all of that. Uh, it was a lot packed into that call. Fred in Laporte, Indiana. Hey, Fred, what's on your mind? Yeah, Tom, I talked to you before. I got sucked into a making a contribution to an outfit that said they were a a uh, Congress and Senate watchdog, and come to find out it was a right wing Republican thing, and I still kicking myself for. <laughs> hey, it enough. happens to the best of us, Fred. <laughs> now, I got something else here, and, and here's, they really make you feel good. I've been selected to mm-hmm. represent the, a representative of Indiana for the 2021 Senior Rights Survey, and this is an outfit, the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare, which was founded in 1982 by former Congressman James Roosevelt, son of President Franklin Roosevelt, signer of the law that created Social Security. Pretty good credentials. Mm-hmm. How true is yeah. it? Uh, it may well be true. I, I, I can't tell you uh, because I, I've never, you know, I've never really dug into that before, Fred, but, but I know that Franklin Roosevelt's uh, son or grandson has been active in trying to preserve Social Security and Medicare. Uh, the group that I support is uh, socialsecurityworks.org. And uh, you know they're they're doing some really great work and 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 very aggressively. Um, I, I generally, you know, the these these email these fundraising mail, mail things that I get, you know, with here's your membership card or you know all this kind of stuff that that really kind of worked back years ago for direct mail and still does, I suppose, with a with a probably with the boomer demographic and the generation that's just a little bit older than the boomers who are aging out quickly. I tend not to respond to that kind of stuff because it just, you know, it seems like they're spending money to get money and I'm really far more interested in the groups like Social Security Works that are doing, you know, they're doing some publishing work. They've, uh, I think they just published a book on Social Security. You know, we have Alex on our program regularly who, uh, I think he's the executive director or the co-executive director of Social Security Works. Yeah, yeah, and, and so there's, you know, there's, there's some good groups out there. But you're wise, Fred, to vet anything you get from anybody these days, because you just never know. I mean, it might have been started, you know, back in 82 by by a great guy, and then he died, and then it got taken over, and then the Koch Foundation took it in or something. I mean, it could well, be anything. that's what I'm afraid of. I, you know, I'm 81, and I'm supposed to be feeble-minded, and I'm not quite, not quite yet. But I still, <laughs> there's so many scams going on that I just, uh, I'm, I'm almost afraid to do anything anymore. Yeah. Well, with things like that, you know, I mean, you know, you, you can always plug them into a search engine and, and dig three or four levels deep. Sometimes the first couple well, things that, that come up computer, are... But, uh, and it seemed to be legitimate, but I, I looked yeah. up something else I talked to you about, of course, the, the demise of democracy going into dictatorship, and you explained that to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, be careful. You're wise to be skeptical, Fred. If you want a good Social Security uh, supporting organization, check out socialsecurityworks.org. They're online. You should be able to check them out. Fred, I got to run. Thanks for the call. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is A Woman of No Importance, The Untold Story of the American Spy Who Helped Win World War II by Sonia Purnell. This is from the prologue. France was falling. Burned-out cars, once strapped high with treasured possessions, were nosed crazily into ditches. Their beloved cargoes of dolls, clocks, and mirrors lay smashed around them and along mile upon mile of unfriendly road. Their owners, young and old, sprawled across the hot dust and were groaning or already silent. Yet the hordes just kept streaming past them, a never-ending line of hunger and exhaustion, too fearful to stop for days on end. Ten million women, children, and old men were on the move, all fleeing Hitler's ranks, pouring across the border from the east and the north. Entire cities had uprooted themselves in a futile bid to escape the Nazi blitzkrieg 
that threatened to engulf them. The fevered talk was of German soldiers stripped to the waist in jubilation at the ease of their conquest. The air was thick with smoke and the stench of the dead. The babies had no milk and the aged fell where they stood. The hordes drawing overladen old farm carts sagged and snarled in their sweat-drenched agony. The French heat wave of May 1940 was witness to this, the largest refugee exodus of all time. Day after day, a solitary moving vehicle weaved its way through the crowd with a striking young woman at the wheel. Private Virginia Hall often ran low on fuel and medicines, but still pressed on in her French army ambulance toward the advancing enemy. She persevered even when the German Strukas came screaming down to drop 110-pound bombs onto the convoys all around her, torching the cars and cratering the roads. Even when fire planes swept over the treetops to machine gun the ditches where women and children were trying to take cover from the carnage. Even though French soldiers were deserting their units, abandoning their weapons and running away, some in their tanks. Even when her left hip was shot with pain from continually pressing down on the clutch with her prosthetic foot. Now at the age of 34, her mission marked the turning point after years of cruel rejection. For her own sake, as much as for the casualties she was picking up from the battlefields and ferrying to the hospital, she could not fail again. There were many reasons why she was willingly jeopardizing her life far from home in aid of a foreign country when millions of others were giving up. Perhaps foremost among them was that it had been so long since she had felt so thrillingly alive. Disgusted with the cowardice of the deserters, she could not understand why they would not continue the fight. But then she had little to lose. The French still remembered sacrificing a third of their young menfolk to the Great War, and a nation of widows and orphans were in no mood for more bloodshed. Virginia, though, intended to go on the road, wherever the battle took her. She was prepared to take whatever risks, face down, any dangers. Total war against the Third Reich might perversely offer her one last hope of personal peace. Yet even this was as nothing compared with what was to come in a life that drew out into a Homeric tale of adventure, action, and seemingly unfathomable courage. Virginia Hall's service in the France of summer 1940 was merely an apprenticeship for a near-suicide mission against the tyranny of the Nazis and their puppeteers in France. She helped to pioneer a daredevil role in espionage, sabotage, and subversion behind enemy lines in an era where women barely featured in the prism of heroism, when their part in combat was confined to the supportive and the palliative, when they were just expected to look nice and act obedient and let the men do the heavy lifting, when disabled women or men <clears throat> were confined to staying at home and leading off a narrow, unsatisfying lives. The fact that a young woman who had lost her leg in tragic circumstances broke through the tightest constrictions and overcame prejudice and even hostility to help the Allies win the Second World War is astonishing. That a female guerrilla leader of her stature remains so little known to this day is incredible. Yet that is perhaps how Virginia would have wanted it. She operated in the shadows, and that was where she was happiest, even to her closest allies in France. She seemed to have no home or family or regiment merely a burning desire to defeat the Nazis. They knew neither her real name nor her nationality, nor how she had arrived in their midst. Constantly changing in looks and demeanor, surfacing without notice across whole swaths of France, only to disappear again as suddenly, she remained an enigma throughout the war, and in some ways after it, too. Even now, tracing her story has involved three solid years of detective work, taking me from the National Archives in London, the Resistance Files in Lyon, and the parachute drop zones in the Haute-Leur, to the judicial dossiers of Paris and even the white marble corridors of CIA headquarters at Langley. My search led me through nine levels of security clearance into the heart of today's world of American espionage. I have discussed the pressures of operating in enemy territory with a former member of Britain's special services and ex-intelligence officers from both sides of the Atlantic. I've tracked down files that were missing and discovered that others remain mysteriously lost or unaccounted for. I have spent days drawing diagrams matching dozens of code names with scores of her missions, months hunting for remaining extracts of these strange disappeared papers, years digging out forgotten documents and memoirs. The book, A Woman of No Importance by Sonia Purnell.
a couple of quick news things, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. It turns out that we find another reason why Donald Trump might be so pissed off with Liz Cheney. It turns out that Liz Cheney was the person who organized the letter signed by her father and every other living former Secretary of Defense urging, this was during the Trump presidency when Trump was trying to contest the election, urging the military not to get involved. You recall, Michael Flynn was giving public speeches saying that the military, he being a former general, that the military needed to seize control of the ballot boxes. Had that happened under Trump's direction, and you'll recall right after, the, right after he lost the election, Trump basically decapitated the senior Pentagon officials. That's how we ended up with uh, Christopher, what's his name, the guy who wrote the memo, that, Christopher Miller, I think his name was, the guy who wrote the January 4th memo that said on January 6th, the National, D.C. National Guard could not help the Capitol Police. Remember that? That was one of the guys that Trump put into place immediately after he lost the election. So Liz Cheney organized this letter to be signed by these, uh, you know, 20-some-odd people who were still alive, who had been former uh, defense secretaries or directly involved in that chain of command. And this could be the revenge as well. We don't know. And finally, one of the Capitol uh, rioters, one of these guys, and, and again, we're calling these people rioters. This is the Washington Post, accused Capitol rioter. These are traitors. You know, a man accused of treason is how this should be phrased. But in any case, the, the accused capital traitor is claiming a defense of foxitis. Honest to God, the accused guy is named Anthony Antonio. And his lawyer, Joseph Hurley, went into court yesterday and claimed that his client who is facing like years in prison for the, you know, invading our capital and, and trying to overthrow our government for committing treason. This is from the Washington Post, this Washington Post story. Quote, Antonio's attorney, Joseph Hurley, claimed that Fox News' decision to regularly air then-President Donald Trump's false claims of mass election fraud contributed to Antonio's decision to participate in the insurrection. He said... He has foxitis. He became hooked on what I call fox mania. This is what the lawyer for this guy is saying. It's crazy, right? I mean, it's, I mean, it's not crazy, actually. I mean, it's actually probably a reasonable defense. Whether, I, I, I don't think it's a reasonable defense in terms of legal terms, but, you know, it's, it's practical in that it probably reflects reality, which is pretty sad when you think about it. Steve in St. Petersburg, Florida. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, you're the deepest talk show host in the world, so I figure you can handle this, what I'm going to say. I was fortunate enough to walk into Europe as an illegal American alien, and I just stayed and worked in the underground economy in several different countries, the U.K., the Netherlands, Switzerland. I also was an illegal immigrant in Canada. And in all of those countries, when I got sick, and in one case, when I was hit by a car, guess how much my health care cost? Zero! Or That's five correct. bucks. Yeah. Zero, and nobody shamed me for being an illegal. And the right. quality of care, the morale and expertise of the doctors and other medical professionals was absolutely through the roof compared yeah. to the American medical system. I have one other point to make, and I hope someday you will wax philosophical because I know you have studied spirituality, religion, theosophy, philosophy. In looking at America now, I've gone back and reread Plato's Republic. I've read Nietzsche, Voltaire, and all of them talk about a point where a populace is majority ignorant, selfish, greedy, short-sighted, and venal, so that if you gave them a democracy, they wouldn't make the right choices. Right, that was Socrates' argument against democracy. In a way, yes. And, and, and I also noticed when I lived, especially in Switzerland, that not only did even the street sweepers speak five languages, but they had 
technocratic, ethical people running their government at the local and federal level who were pretty much immune from being bribed or having incentive to bribery, who were trained in governing and vetted for ethics and integrity all the way through their public service. I'm beginning to wonder if America has a chance. What do you think? I, you know, I do, Steve, and, and it's, it's in part because I'm such an old fart. I remember prior to Reagan, you know, uh, Reagan came along and made the comment once, and I've, I've seen it repeated many, many times on right-wing message boards and, and, and by right-wing talk show hosts over the years, that there are no smart people in government because government doesn't pay very well. And if you were really smart, you'd be working in industry, and therefore government gets the worst people. That was Reagan's shtick. And prior to Reagan, people went into government because it was public service. It did pay well and it did provide you know, job security and, and a retirement. But prior to Reagan, we respected public service. Post Reagan, we started dissing public service. So for 40 years now, we've been trashing public service. There still have been a lot of good public servants. And a lot of people feel that call to duty and have, and have answered it. But I think that the Biden administration and the Democratic Party now are putting respect and respectability back into that into that field. And I think that's a good thing. So I'm very hopeful, Steve, actually. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.